We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to a Thursday edition of the Roadwire NBA podcast, brought to you as always by WinBet. Check out winbet.com. Uh, Nick Whalen, joined as always by Alex Barutha. Uh, Alex, I have once again self overdosed on iced coffee. I am hyped <laughs> up to talk uh, everything NBA. Uh, I feel like we need to start with the Suns and Nuggets series, which took another turn in favor of the Phoenix Suns last night, uh, a game that I thought very much resembled game one of this series, which was close in the first quarter, not quite as close in the second. And then the Suns just completely break it open with a big run in the third. And it it just felt to me like Denver was completely overwhelmed uh, in the third quarter of this game as well. And I mean, the cascading kind of started in the second quarter, like Phoenix is just fully in control of this series in every single aspect. Yeah, they, um, I think they won every quarter of this game. Um, Yeah, they did. The only the only thing Denver is like winning right now is the offensive rebounding battle, which is kind of surprising. And I'm not exactly certain that that will keep up. Other than that, they're getting beat everywhere else. Um, So I again, yeah, like I'm with you. I don't know where I don't know. I mean, the Nuggets got Will Barton back. They did. And he looked uh, okay. He looked okay. Um, You know, it's like their second best player at times in this game. Yeah, he only played 16 minutes. But he's not a guy that I was expecting to swing the series yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what adjustments they have. I'm, I, I'm even more confident at this point, obviously, that the Suns will win in five. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's four at this point. Right. I mean, you'd, you'd like to think that Denver at home is able to rally, and and seemingly it would have to be game three. I, I feel the same way about the Bucks tonight against Brooklyn, where if if the Bucks go down 0-3. I, nothing about this Bucks team screams like resilience, uh, great under pressure. You know, I, I think if they lose game three, they probably get blown out in game four. And I would say the same thing about Denver. I, part of it is Michael Porter is just not right. He played about 28 minutes in this game, but came in questionable uh, with, with some lower back uh, issues. Obviously, a guy that has plenty of back issues in his past. So that's pretty concerning. Um, but beyond that, I mean, neither team could really hit a shot for most of the first half. And, and Phoenix obviously ended up catching fire and, and scoring 71 points in the second half. But I mean, Phoenix was missing a ton of open looks, uh, especially in that second quarter. Like Cam Johnson had like back-to-back wide open looks from the wing, uh, the type of shots that like really would have blown the game open. And, you know, Denver was able to, to hang around and cut a 20-plus point lead down to 13 or 15 on a couple of occasions. But I mean, some of it is just Phoenix being being great offensively, but Denver's really not getting anything from Austin Rivers. They're not getting anything from Aaron Gordon, who at times looked like he was trying to get thrown out of this game, fighting with Jay Crowder. Uh, another bad game for Monte Morris, who now is, I believe, two of 17 from the field uh, in the series. So I, I thought Jokic did all he could. I mean, he was being swarmed regardless of where he caught the ball. Um, and, and a lot of the shots that 
he made to get to 24 points were really difficult. But outside of him, like if Michael Porter's not going to knock down somewhere between three and eight three-pointers per game, I mean, Denver's just out of options pretty quickly. Yeah, Michael Porter was basically like a close to a 50-40-90 player after Jamal Murray went down. And in the series, he's like he's like a 35-30-75 player. Um, like they need they need him to be good. And, you know, kind of, as I, I said last podcast, I think Jokic has to get to like 25 and five for the Nuggets even to stand a chance. He had 24. He was close. But like, I, I mean, he only has five made free throws in the series and it was all this game. I don't think he had a free throw attempt in game one. Um, it's just they they DeAndre Ayton is good enough to at least keep Jokic to his averages, like his regular season averages, essentially. And then if they can't get good production from Michael Porter, that's that's kind of curtains for them. I've been so impressed with Aiden. Like he's he's so much stronger, I think, than he looks. Like obviously he looks really yeah. old in the face. Like his he looks like he's 38 years old. I was watching with my girlfriend last night. She refused to believe that he was, you know, what six years younger than I am. But he's underratedly really strong. Like some of the rebounds that he pulls down in traffic are have been huge for Phoenix. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, I, I, Jokic has done all he could. I, I don't think it's been necessarily a bad series for Jokic. I think statistically it's been a little bit disappointing, but it kind of reminds me of what, you know, what we've seen from Giannis in some of these series or even LeBron, where when everybody's focused on you and you know they're not really scared of anyone around you, it just makes it a lot harder to, to have those like 35, 15 and 10 games that, that we're used to seeing from some of those guys. Um, I mean, I, I, at this point, Phoenix and four, Phoenix and five. Uh, I'm going to stick with five. I mean, I, I just, I, I think there, there is a chance Michael Porter catches fire from three, right? Jokic is bound to have, I think probably one big game in the series. Sure. If those two things happen in the same game, then that's probably a win for the Nuggets. Um, but yeah, four would not surprise me at all. So as of right now, are, are the Suns your pick to come out of the West? Um, I think so. Um, it's close. I mean, game one of Jazz Clippers, I it was kind of the, that game was so much about the three point shooting that for me, I like didn't really enjoy watching it until the very end when it stopped becoming about the three point shooting. Mm-hmm. Like I, they were there, they ended up taking the the teams combined took ninety two threes in game one, the Clippers and Jazz. Um, <laughs> Which is kind of unbelievable. Like even you know, I'm not someone who like um, you know romanticizes the '90s or the early 2000s like a lot of people do in terms of like loving mid-range jumpers. But this was like even too much for me. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the Suns are a more dynamic team, if that makes sense. They can score from anywhere on the court. They like to score from everywhere on the court. And I think the Jazz and even the Clippers can get like way too mm-hmm. reliant on. We have to make it like every possession is about just shooting a three. As we've seen over and over with the Clippers, their offense bogged down when they needed a bucket late. You know, that that final possession of the game when you absolutely need to score, Kawhi passes off, Paul, Paul George passes off, and it ends in a Marcus Morris, you know, basically a heave from the corner that just gets blocked by Rudy Gobert. And, you know, you, you could play that, that kind of just run and gun, toss up threes, style but when you actually need offense late in the game in crunch time when it really matters um we've seen that bog down over and over again for the clippers that with that said i do feel like the clips have a pretty good chance to even the series tonight i thought they played better than the jazz for the majority of that game uh they, they obviously had no answer for donovan mitchell who pulled this one across the finish line for utah but uh, you know joe ingles was not good in that game and gobert was fine um obviously made some big defensive plays late if there's no mike conley in game two i, I think i do like the clips to even it up yeah, I think that would make sense. Obviously, this game was played very evenly. Um, neither team had, like, any huge advantage in terms of, you know, like, uh, shooting efficiency. The rebounding was similar. The turnovers were almost identical. Um, yeah. You know, the the Jazz did a better job of not taking mid-rangers, but in the playoffs, mid-rangers can obviously be valuable. But I, I agree with you. That, that last possession, or the last few possessions for the Clippers, I was, like, shocked when Kawhi Leonard passed off the wing to Marcus Morris in the corner. I was like, what? Yeah. It looked like he was, he was about to like wind up and take that three from the wing and then just backed out of it. Like it was almost, he was operating as if they had like 30 seconds left instead of six seconds. Right. And it's like, I understand 
you know, maybe you don't want to leave time on the clock, but it's like, we're talking about shooting when there's six seconds left to tie the game. Yeah. Like, it's not, this isn't like, it's like you said, there's not 12 seconds left. There's not 30 right. seconds left. You know, if, if the jazz are lucky, they have four seconds mm-hmm. to try to, you know, make a play on the other side. Yeah. You'll live with the, with a Kawhi Leonard contested three in that situation. And you take your chances on getting a rebound if you have to, but yeah, that was, that was like cringe inducing to watch live. Um, Bucks Nets. We'll, we'll do some last minute thoughts on that one. Uh, that game will, will tip off about six hours from when we're recording right now. So we won't go too deep. But as you said earlier this week, you'll be in the house for game three. Uh, I, I just saw this morning, Pfizer is going to be at 100% capacity for the first time. That kind of came out of nowhere. I thought they were still at like 75. But this will be the first capacity game in like 15 months in Milwaukee. I, despite being down 0-2 and having like the most demoralizing loss possible, in game two, I, I do think this is going to be a rowdy environment. And I, for some reason, I, I kind of like the Bucks' chances to to steal this one. Uh, they're three and a half point favorites. Usually when there's a weird line like that, that doesn't make any sense with how the series has gone. There's a reason for it. Um, the shooting has to come around. Um, and, and I was talking on the DK show this morning with Julian Edlow, who, uh, you know, he was saying like, you know, the Bucks role players will, will play better. The Nets role players will probably play a little bit worse. And I think that's true, but my retort to him was, I don't really think the role players have been the issue for Milwaukee. I think they need better play out of their top three. It's not the Connaughton's and Tucker's and Forbes that have been letting them down. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, as far as the, as far as the Nets role players go, um, I mean, I, it's not like I'm not expecting Joe Harris to shoot 50% from three. You know what I mean? Um, Griffin, 45%, not as much, but yeah, the bucks, like, I mean, Middleton has kind of been, you know, the main issue, uh, just in terms of his percentages being awful, a um, lot of turnovers for him, more turnovers and assists, kind of that kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you you know, the Bucks only have, you know, other than the starting five, the only two players that I think need to play besides that are Bryn Forbes and Bobby Portis. And Portis hasn't been great. Forbes has been fine, but, you know, he can catch fire from three. He can hit like four threes, five threes in a game. Middleton, you know, some regression or progression to the mean, however you want to put it, I think is probably due. Um, I would just like to also think that the city of Milwaukee saw the Bucks down 0-2 in the series and was like, maybe we can do 100% capacity uh, in this case. Pulling out all the stops. Yeah, all the stops are, are pulled out. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would stop short of saying that I'm optimistic for the Bucks just because of, of how devastating these first two games have been. Like, they have... There, there has not been a 10-minute stretch where they've been the best team on the court at any point. And I, I also worry, like, they're, they're not a team that has displayed a ton of resilience in the past. You know, like, when, when things go well, they're kind of a front-running team. When things go well, things are going really well. When things are not going well, they're not the type of team that I trust to pull themselves out of that situation and reverse it. No, I think, um, and I, I think this is, you know, kind of a... Uh, it, era defining game for them does that make sense like i, I think yeah. they're in a very specific bucks era right now where the expectations are as high as they've ever been um obviously Giannis is coming off the two mvps they got a great coach it's been you know back-to-back playoff disappointments and it kind of feels like if the bucks lose this game it's you're it's almost like another era might start i don't know exactly what that entails i mean we kind of speculated that Bugenholzer's job is probably in jeopardy with this game. Um, but I, I just think kind of, like I said before, I think a lot of this is going to come down to, you know, Giannis uh, taking more of a back seat or being in the dunker spot more, playing more like a big man. Um, you know, I think, I think the main problem with the Bucks is they just haven't been bullying the, the nets enough, especially since the nets switch all the time. You know, the nets are playing a switching defense and holiday and Middleton are both guys who, will you know can uh, back guys up in the post and draw fouls and do that sort of thing and it just hasn't been i feel like they haven't been aggressive enough in, in punishing the the nets for playing small and switching we touched on this a little bit earlier in the week but for me it's i wouldn't i wouldn't quite go as far as to say it's like an era defining series just because you have Giannis locked up this whole thing would be so much different if Giannis had signed just like a one plus one <laughs> or you hadn't signed Drew Holiday like it would be significantly worse and it's, it's pretty bad as is but it would be a lot worse uh, so I, like it doesn't really feel like this is like their final run or anything like that oh but 
at the same time, I, I think it's probably the final run for Bud. And I, the way the series plays out, I, I think, goes a long way to defining how we feel about this era of Bucks basketball. You know, it, I, I think if they had if they had played a tough series and lost in seven and James Harden was healthy, you would say, look, we, you know, they just got beat by an all time great team with three future first ballot Hall of Famers, maybe a top 10 player ever, a top 20 player ever, and then a, a top 50 player ever. You know, it's like, what are you going to do about that? But to get, you know, if they end up losing the series in four or five games and the four losses aren't close and James Harden doesn't play more than one minute in the entire series, like that, that's a, you come away from that series feeling completely differently than if you'd played seven competitive games. Right. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about this yesterday, just in terms of, you know, how if the Bucks lose to the, the Nets here, how are we going to look back on, you know, I guess the last three seasons, um, you know, basically the Budenholzer era and, you know, the the Eastern Conference Finals lost to the Raptors. The Raptors went on to win the NBA Finals. Right. So anytime you get beat by a team that wins the NBA Finals, you generally like it's it's, it's it doesn't feel like it's as bad of a loss. The following season was the bubble season. So like some people are going to throw that out, say it doesn't count um, to some, not maybe not that far, but the heat ended up going to the finals. Right. Um, And then this season, there's a good chance that if the Bucks lose to the Nets, the Nets win the NBA finals. So you're kind of just, you continue to bump up against these teams who are either in the finals or win the finals. Um, I'm, I'm just worried that we get into a situation where let's say the Nets thing works out. They win the title. Harden, Katie, and Kyrie stay together for the next like three to five years. You have to be worried, kind of, as a Bucks fan, that the Bucks turn into like the Eastern Conference version of the Houston Rockets with Harden that kept bumping up against that Warriors team for like forever, and they just like couldn't get over the hump, and they almost did. Um, and I'm just kind of worried that's that's what's going to happen, and the it's possible Milwaukee never really gets their chance because of that. Right. And for me, I, you go back and you think about that Toronto series as being the chance. You know, I, the yep. Bucks were the best team in the league that year. And, you know, historically, that's kind of the year that a lot of teams take their lumps and then come back the next year or the year after and win the title. You know, think OKC, um, you know, how close they came and, you know, obviously never, never got over the hump with Durant. But it was kind of a, oh, they'll be back type of thing. And they never were. And it, it does kind of feel like Milwaukee is maybe heading in that direction. But I don't feel like it's the Bucks fault. Like the the Brogdon situation, I, I would have preferred to keep him around. Uh, the Bogdanovich situation is now the more recent blunder that gets talked about. Like, there are definitely things that Milwaukee could have done to improve this roster, going all the way back to choosing Jabari Parker with the number two overall pick. But it, to me, it's more about this really great Nets team forming at the wrong time. And I, I don't know that, you know, we, we've talked about this with a number of teams where, like, you know, the, the Warriors of years past, like, there, there are multiple teams that would be good enough to win a title in another decade or a different year if those teams weren't around. But when you have one team that's that good, there's just really nothing the rest of the league can do. But I just keep coming back to the point of James Harden is not healthy. Without James Harden, I don't think the difference should be as big as it's been through two games. That I agree with. Um, and and that's kind of the point that's hard to figure out exactly what's going on other than you know, there's kind of a lack of adjustments or a lack of buy-in on the adjustments. It's it's hard to know, right? Like, it almost feels like we need some sort of, um, you know, like nothing really comes out of Milwaukee or nothing really comes out of the locker room, it feels like, in terms of, you know, players speaking out and saying they don't like certain adjustments or they have an issue with certain players. Like, st- a ton of stuff came out about the Clippers last year, obviously, like the, uh, the Mavericks with, with Porzingis and Doncic. Um, it's not really like that about the Bucks, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on or if anyone's blaming anyone else. Um, I don't know. Well, we'll see what happens tonight. I, I think the way that this game goes is going to dramatically change the tone of how we talk about this series and, and this Bucks team. If they if they win handily, all of a sudden there's going to be a lot of momentum heading into Sunday's Game Four. If they lose again, you know, it's it's complete doom and gloom. And then we we really start talking about what changes are going to be made. Um, I want to touch on Kemba real quick before we get to, uh, you know, dive fully into the top 150. There was a report in Bleacher Report yesterday that Kemba wants out of Boston partially because of a rift, essentially, that's formed between him and management. And, and obviously that management team has since changed. But uh, basically the Celtics attempted to trade Walker 
multiple times throughout the past year. And whether they were trying to conceal that or not, his representation found out about it. And there's now a, a mistrust there. To me, this is not overly surprising. I, I think anyone who knows basketball and knows contracts and watch the Celtics play. Um, I, I don't think it's a crazy idea that Boston would explore trading Kemba Walker. Um, but one of the deals that came out on, on Thursday morning is allegedly they were going to try to flip him for LaMarcus Aldridge to San Antonio, which to me more than anything speaks to just how low Kemba Walker's value apparently is on the open market. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they're unsurprisingly, they just probably want to go off the contract in any way they can. Um, and like, I'm, I, and obviously the Spurs turned that down. Like they just don't want to attach themselves to that contract. And I don't know what competitive team would, um, unless they're like basically already a title team already, you know, like would the Lakers take Kemba Walker if they found a way, you know, Walker in the place of Schroeder. I think if, you know, if there was a way to make it happen, it, it could, but I don't really think, that's possible. So like, I, I don't, I don't really know where you're putting Kemba unless you're basically just dumping him to a bad team. Um, that's willing to take on salary. I think if you're a, a team like the Lakers that has a legitimate chance to win the finals next year, I don't think you could take that risk. And and knowing the Lakers, they probably would because these are the type of moves <laughs> that they make, but I wouldn't want like a guy. Like, it's not about Kemba Walker, the player or the person. It's about his health. And yeah, yeah. I, what about anything that's happened the last two years implies that he'll be more healthy next year. You know, like they, they took every precaution possible last year and in this past off season, and he still missed a ton of time and was really never himself for, for anything more than like a two or three game stretch this season. So I, I think that's just going to continue and it's, it's going to kind of unravel. And I mean, he's kind of now in that like John Wallish territory for me, where like th those, that, that week or two when he's really healthy and his knees are feeling fine he can look like an all-star point guard, but you never know when those knee issues are going to crop up. And if, <clears throat> if they happen to crop up in round one of the playoffs, and that's a guy that you're really depending on to be your second or third option, all of a sudden your team is completely sunk. Like we saw with the Celtics. Right. And he's not, you know, he's not a great defensive player or anything. He's probably, he's a, probably a negative on defense. Um, yeah. He's just not, he's not an elite playmaker. And, you know, I, he just doesn't seem like someone that's necessarily happy with being like a third option on a team or a fourth option. Um, and when you're pay like, you, you, it's also not justifiable really to, to pay a guy, you know, 35, $40 million to be like your third option mm -hmm. that you don't trust to play 65 games in a normal season. The one option that kind of made sense to me, and this is another one of those moves where you're like, yeah, I could totally see this team doing this is the Knicks, who have a ton of cap space. Obviously, Kemba has a history with, with that area of the country and with Madison Square Garden. He's a New York guy. You could kind of see him stepping in as the Derrick Rose replacement if they were to, to go that direction. I, I don't love that move for them in the short term, but at the same time, it's not like the Knicks are a, a true title contender next year or probably the year after, unless you make a really big splash in free agency. So like, if you're the team that just takes on Kemba Walker for the final two years of that contract... And, you know, you're content kind of staying in the same position that you are while guys like Barrett and Randall and quickly grow. I, I don't I don't necessarily hate that idea for both sides. It's not terrible. Um, I, it kind of depends, I guess, on what the Knicks long term plans are. You know, I mean, if they. I just don't know. I, it, it's tough to say. I, you know, if you can get Kemba, I don't know if you have any room to get anyone else in terms of like, can you sign someone else in free agency and make a bigger push? But obviously like signing Kemba, that's not really, what does that take you from a 0.5% chance to win the title to a 0.9% chance to win the title? It might lower it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this also kind of goes back to the point of if the Nets are the Nets next year and all indications are that they will be like, how many teams truly have a chance? You know, I, I think it's this kind of goes back to our, our conversation about Lillard the other day, too, where it's like not every player in the league can be judged on whether or not they won the title, because really, usually only one or two stars are going to win the title every year, depending on how the team is constructed. So if we're if we're looking at 29 other teams and saying that all of the stars on those teams are failures, then, you know, over a five year span, every single player in the league is going to be dubbed a failure at some point. Right. And as of right now, I think it's conceivable that like it looks like maybe 
other than the Nets, six teams would be in contention again between Phoenix, Utah, both LAs, Philly, and Milwaukee. But I, like you mentioned, if Brooklyn just you know becomes a powerhouse like the the Warriors used to be, then you know you kind of hope that uh, you know maybe there can be a non Nets title once over the next like three or four years. And for that to occur, you basically need an injury. Right. I mean, does anyone out there think that the Raptors were beating the Warriors if Durant and Clay and everybody stays healthy? I, I don't think so. Uh, probably not. The other trade that was brought up in the Kemba article was uh, apparently Danny Ainge tried to flip him for Drew Holiday before the season. But New Orleans was not interested, believe it or not. <laughs> That's not surprising. I mean, that would have been uh, that would been incredible for Boston. But obviously, uh have no idea why the Pelicans would eat, yeah. et cetera. I would well, love it, to know Ainge's argument or like yeah, his right. pitch. The article didn't go into that. That's what I thought too. It's like, it, it pitched it as almost like a, you know, like the Celtics were rebuffed as if it was like a, a deal that they were, you know, going to benefit from at all. It's like, why would like New Orleans, I assume just said no and hung up the phone immediately. <laughs> right. Exactly. Let's get into the way too early top 150. Again, that went live on the site earlier this week. Uh, I mean, everybody's talking about it. I, I, people have stopped me on the street and then we're like, DeJounte Murray, 55, Terry Rozier, 57. What are you guys doing? Um, I want to I want to hit on just a few guys. We'll, we'll kind of just go through the list and we'll talk about either, you know, why they're ranked where they are, where where they maybe should be. Um, and, and just, you know, some guys I want to just have a discussion on as far as like, how do we evaluate this player for next season? Uh, we hit on a few of the top guys last week, but I do want to go back to Anthony Davis, who comes in at number nine. In terms of upside, Davis, in any given year, has the potential to be the number one overall player in fantasy. Um, how did you evaluate him You know, when we went through and, and kind of made our individual edits to the list? Did you think about putting him higher? Did you think about putting him lower, given the recent injury concerns? I thought this was a pretty good spot for him. Um, you know, he kind of had a down year this year. It's hard to tell if that was even before he got hurt. You know, it's kind of hard to tell if that was him taking it easy after the short offseason um, in a way that I thought also LeBron was doing. But he did regress as like a free throw shooter pretty hard, which is concerning. Um, his three point percentage was down a lot. So his shooting percentages were I mean, if those bounce back, he should be fine. But again, you know, AD is a guy you have to consider his, his injuries. Right. Like he's he's a top. I mean, he's been the number one player in fantasy before on a per game basis. He's been. You know, uh, that was three years ago, or I guess four years ago, and then he was two, and then he was two again. But in terms of you know total production, it's it's you worry that he's going to miss like you know 25 games or something like that, and it's kind of hard to justify taking him like number two or number three when that's a concern. So we have Doncic at number 10, one spot behind Davis. In, in terms of counting stats, very few players can match what Doncic provides in points, rebounds, assists volume threes but for him the biggest thing right now is the free throw shooting and he's at 73 and a half percent career he's been hovering in the low 70s virtually every single season and it feels like that got worse partially maybe because of the the neck issue that he was dealing with in the playoffs but I think he ended the year on a pretty sour note as far as free throw shooting goes not not super encouraged that that's going to be you know jumping from 72 or 73 to 82 or 83 anytime soon no I'm not really sure what the precedent is for someone who takes as many free throws as Doncic with like that big of a sample size, you know, and shoots about 75, 73% for his career through his first three years to jump up to like even 80% for um, an extended stretch or even get up to 85% at any point in his career. So that kind of just caps what he's even capable of as a, as a fantasy player, uh, which is tough because obviously like the rest of his game is incredible. He's one of the best points league players you can have. Oh, for sure. I mean, he would he would almost be better off just not getting to the line at this point. Like if you if you eliminate free throw percentage, he's he's absolutely in contention, maybe not for the number one pick just because he doesn't really add a whole lot on D. But I mean, he jumps probably five to six spots. I mean, that's the category where he's basically hurting you the most. Yeah, he's technically hurting you in blocks more. But obviously, like if you're drafting Doncic for blocks, like what are you doing? Um, Yeah. So free throw is, is tough for him. So, I mean. I, I'm still happy to take him top 10 um, and, you know, maybe as high as like seven or something. Cause he's a guy too, where um, 
he doesn't I mean he he hasn't played he hasn't played more than 72 games in a season he played 61 last season 66 this season but I'm not like really worried about him or his health or anything like that no not really and and obviously last year was the shortened season this year's a shortened season he's had the ankle injuries over and over but it's usually missing two or three games here three or four games there like he, he's yet to have anything that causes him to miss two months which is I, I think ultimately what you look out for as far as projecting year-to-year injuries what about Jimmy Butler who checks in at number 20 overall. So just at the end of the second round uh, in a 12-team league, pretty much career highs across the board. Uh, Last year, I think that was the best statistical season we've seen from him. Over seven assists, just about seven rebounds, 21.5 points, 2.1 steals. That's also a career high. Uh, 49.7% from the field, also a career high. 86% at the line. The big drawback with Butler, of course, is he has basically stopped shooting threes the last two years. He's had a half-made three per game, both this season and last season. Uh, But he's made up for that by getting to the line a ton. He's averaging about eight and a half free throws a game over the last two years and hitting those at about an 85% clip. So kind of a weird fantasy profile, but I I do feel like he's a guy that I won't necessarily be avoiding, but I wouldn't be surprised if he takes a slight step back next year, due in large part to the fact that he's just carried such a crazy workload for the Heat the last two seasons. Yeah, this was his best fantasy season per game by four spots. And I think, you know, he's going to be 32 next year. I mean, do you really expect, I mean, maybe he could keep those numbers stagnant. Um, I'm not so sure. Some of this will depend on their offseason too, right? Like they may be able to add, you know, Kyle Lowry is someone that that's kind of been, uh, his name's been floated around. But it's it can be tough to rely on guys who are, who get a lot of their fantasy value from uh, like steals or defensive stats in general, because those can fluctuate pretty heavily from year to year. Now Butler has been over 1.8 for the past like five seasons. So it's not too worrying, but I think his age combined with his injury history uh, makes me a little concerned because um, he hasn't finished above 20 in the past uh, four seasons, partially because of games played. It feels like he's going to be an old 32. Like I, if you told me he's turning 34, that would almost seem right. Like he's he's been in the league for a while, played a ton of minutes early in his career. Uh, and, and credit to Miami, they have cut back. I mean, he's been in about the 33, 34 minute per game range these last two years after sitting in like the 39 range in Chicago. So so hopefully that prolongs his prime a little bit. Uh, I want to touch on Michael Porter, who who we hit on, you know, when talking about the Denver series. He struggled for the most part in the playoffs. We have met 23. I think a couple weeks ago, that looked a lot better. I mean, right now, he's certainly nowhere near a top 25 fantasy player, but he was a top 20 player overall after Jamal Murray went down for the final 20-odd games of the regular season. And, I mean, Murray's going to miss at, 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 what's the best case scenario? He misses half the season? I mean, probably three quarters of the season based on when that injury occurred. So I, I think, you know, you're looking at a long period of time where Porter's going to be the de facto, you know, clear number two option for Denver. And, I, we'll see if he reaches those same heights, but if he stays healthy, it's it's definitely possible. Yeah, Porter, I think uh, he's someone who, again, like if you're in a best ball league, you would love to take him at like 25, like basically where we have him, uh, 23. That's completely fine. But if you're in a roto league, I, I'm still worried about his health. Obviously, like, you know, his back was good for almost all the season. And then come playoff time, it basically gives out, right? Um, and so I think... You have to be concerned uh, about that. So if you're if you're in a roto league, I understand if you want to take him like 30-ish, maybe even 40 if he slips that far just because of the health concerns. But if you're shooting for pure upside, yeah, like 20th is is not out of the question because he's you know he's he could be 25 points a game next year on like nearly 50, 40, 90. Um, I guess his free throw shooting is not that good, but maybe he was 19 a game this season on 54% from the field and 44% from three. The percentages with him are, are huge, you know, especially for a guy who's going to give you probably like three made threes per game to possibly shoot 50 to 53 percent is is massive in that category. The only thing with him, though, too, is like he's he's under a block per game, although, you know, if he's playing more minutes and serving as the number two uh, for, for at least the first half of the year, he can probably push that over one. Not a great steals producer and gives you almost nothing in assists. So, you know, if you are going to take him that high, we talked earlier in the week about you know, if you're taking Giannis, what you need to do to offset 
some of his drawbacks. Like I, I think with Porter, it's like you, you can't take two guys in a row who are giving you like no assist production if he's going to be, say, your late second round pick. Right. He kind of if you if you take away the fact that he just like shoots a lot of threes, he has kind of the production of like an old school power forward who just shoots right. every time he touches it. Um, it's very mellow esque. It is. I mean, it's kind of like next level mellow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have Julius Randle at 27. He's sandwiched between Fred Van Vliet and Russell Westbrook. I have no idea what to make of Randle for next year. Like, I, I don't think he's all of a sudden going to go back to the player that he was two years ago. I, I also have a hard time believing he'll be able to match what he did this year. I mean, it, the way it flamed out in the playoffs, I, I think, marred what was a like a super memorable year. for. I mean, nobody thought the Knicks were going to be the four seed in the Eastern Conference. Not a lot of people pegged Julius Randle as a most improved player candidate. Like, it was an awesome regular season story, but I, I think he could maybe sustain that. I do not really see Julius Randle going up a level, even though he's not that old. Up a level would be tough. I do think the shooting seems real because both his free throw percentage and his three-point percentage went up by almost like 10% apiece. Yeah. Um, so, I like, I don't think that's too fluky because both went up. So, I think... Yeah, I mean, play, playing 38 minutes a game is huge, um, you know, and I, I, again, like, I think 24, 10, and 6 again for him is is pretty reasonable. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting him to go up to 28, 12, and 9 or something like that. Like, he's not going to turn into Giannis. Right, and we also need to take into account who's around him. Like, the, the team around him was not very good, and that's what made this season all the more impressive is that, I mean, he was doing virtually everything for them at times and, and willed them to a top-four seed you know, if, if you bring in someone like Kemba Walker or DeMar DeRozan or whoever it is, or, or even if you get some legit, you know, big time improvement from a guy like RJ Barrett or Emmanuel quickly, all of a sudden Julius Randle doesn't necessarily need to play 40 minutes a night and take 25 shots. Yeah, I don't think you want uh, Julius Randle taking like 19, 20 shots a game necessarily. I think I mean, you, you saw what happened in the playoffs, like it's just right. not a, a sustainable way to play so like I said, right after Randall, we have Westbrook at 28. I, I, I did the write-up for him, and, and I wrote, you know, flawed as his game may be, Westbrook still piles up assists, rebounds, and even steals at a rate unlike any other player in the league. And that is totally true. He has done that for now, what, four or five years. He's kind of been at this just ridiculous, mind-bending, statistical level. And, you know, at, at no point has it really led to legitimate victories, but, like, how long can he keep this up? I mean, he's going to be 33 next year, but he's coming off of a 22, 12, and 12, if you round up, with one and a half steals, 44% from the field, which for Westbrook isn't all that bad. I mean, that's that's better than where he was at five years ago when he was at arguably his you know absolute peak in OKC. You know, like a lot of these guys that we've touched on, he's a terrible free throw shooter. He's a high volume free throw shooter. Uh, that's his biggest drawback. I mean, if you're playing in a league with turnovers, that's also a massive issue. Uh, he would not rank nearly this high if that's the case. But he's just such a unique player that it's it's really hard to pass on getting that kind of production, especially in rebounds from a guard. It is. It's weird because he just kind of forgot how to shoot four years ago. Like you look at his three point and free throw percentage um, from his, his second uh, to last season in OKC onward. And it's just a hard dip in both categories um i i'm kind of with you where i met oh you mentioned like how how long can he keep this up he's gonna be 33 uh he has dealt with some injuries recently you know his style of play obviously does not lend itself to him playing till he's like 38 effectively and he's someone where i am worried about you know is there just going to be one season where it kind of falls apart? And it looked like it was going to be this season, right? Like at the start of the season, it looked like he's done. You know, this is the year where it just kind of collapses and he's out of the league in two years. Um, I, I'm just always going to be paranoid that the year that I, I draft him, uh, based on what he did the previous year, that it's going to be the year that he, he basically is not effective at all anymore. I don't think I've ever rostered Westbrook in a season-long league. And for that exact reason, I've, I've, I've been in this mode for like four years. And <laughs> I, I think it, it just becomes progressively riskier. And he, he showed enough this year, especially over those final few months, that I don't think I don't think he's like this, this bomb just waiting to blow up next year where all of a sudden at the all-star break, he just falls off a cliff and that's it. But you are right. It's going to happen at some point. And, you know, it might take it might take another injury. You know, if he has a, a situation like LeBron, you know, he gets rolled up on and has a high ankle and 
it's just, you know, never, never fully comes back at, at age 33. Like I could see that being the case, but at the same time, he's so competitive and he goes so hard that like, I, I just like, I, I don't think he'll play longer than he needs to, I guess. Like, I, I think if he's, if he's truly like killing teams out there, I, I think he would be a type of guy that, that wouldn't want to, you know, be that type of player. And, and you could argue that he's, he's had some stretches where he's done that already. Uh, plenty of like three for 20 shooting games over the last few years, but on the whole, he's still an effective player. And I, I think until he believes that he's not an effective player, he's going to, he's not going to change his style. I agree with you. I think, you know, my initial concern or like something that, um, you know, when you kind of look at some numbers worries me is that his shooting at the rim decreased a ton this season. Like he was basically at like 40 to 45% of his shots at the rim for the bulk of his career um, as a percentage of his attempts. Now he's down to 30, which is a huge drop off. Like he was more reliant on mid range jumpers this season than he's almost ever been. And he's getting fouled less over the past three years than he basically ever been at the last, uh, you know, few years, which is, which is for him, if he's not getting fouled and he's not getting to the rim and he's just turns into a mid range pull-up player and someone in transition, like, I don't know, man, I, one year when they, when they stop falling, he's going to shoot like 39%. Zion Williamson uh, is another guy I think we have to talk about. He's at 32 um, I, I feel like based on his profile as a player, that probably looks a little bit low at, at face value, but for as many strides as he made as a scorer, uh, his rebounding was up this year. His assists were a lot better, especially over the second half of the season, um, got a little bit better on the defensive end. But again, he's another guy that as long as he's shooting sub 70% from the free throw line on nine attempts per game and not giving you any three pointers to balance that out, like his ceiling is only so high. Like he was the single most valuable field goal percentage contributor of any player in the league. If you, if you dive into the metrics, you know, 17 shot attempts per game uh, hit those at a 61% clip. So, it, you know, he, he was carrying teams in the field goal percentage category, but he's also killing you at the same time in free throw percentage. I think he was the third or third or fourth worst player in free throw percentage. Like he, he's in that group with Westbrook, Gobert and Giannis. The second half of his season was ridiculous. Like incredibly, like when he started passing more essentially, uh, when when he was allowed to kind of play pseudo point guard and his final 38 games was 29 points a game on 18 shot attempts, seven and a half rebounds, four assists, which is crazy. Um, not really like anything we've seen before. But yeah, the free throws are a concern, but they also kind of got better towards the end of the year. He was 70 percent, which is basically the Doncic levels. Um, so I. the The injuries do concern me. But his upside is still, I mean, it's still really high. I'm, I'm fine with where we have him. Um, you know, he finished 50th per game this season. Obviously, there's there's way more upside there. Once the defensive stuff starts to click, you know, if he can be a 2.5 combined steals and blocks guy at some point, you know, then then we're then we're really talking, even if the free throw shooting doesn't come around. And the nice thing with Zion is we're only two years into this. So he was 64 percent at the line as a rookie and then 69.8 as a sophomore. Like if you follow that sort of linear progression, which a lot of players don't, but if he can shoot 73 or 74 this year and two years from now, he's at 77 or 78, you could totally live with that. Like he, he never even has to reach 80, but for a guy who will probably approach 10 free throw attempts per game next year, you just can't be in the mid to high sixties. No, I mean, one thing to it, you know, it seems like if it's felt like we've seen a lot of him, but he's only gotten, uh, 85 regular season games played yeah. so far in his two years. And that, in some ways that feels like a victory based on how his rookie year went. Like he did stay remarkably healthy you know, until that kind of freak, was it a hand or a finger injury at the yeah. end of the year? And, and at that point, the Pelican season was pretty much over. So I, there wasn't really a huge push to bring him back. Exactly. I have no idea what to do with John Moran. I, we have him <laughs> at 49. He, yeah, he, he was somebody that when we did our auctions, last year going into the season. Like I, I remember Chris Benzine on staff, like paid a King's ransom for him in, in one of our leagues. And I, I think he was, you know, for a good reason, pegged as a breakout candidate, had those two insane games to begin the year and then had the ankle injury. And it never, never seemed like he quite got back to where he was. And then all of a sudden, you know, the last couple of weeks of the regular season and into the playoffs, he's back to looking like the John Morant, who people were saying, you know, you might rather have this guy than Zion at the same time. After the All-Star break, he ranked outside of the top 130 
in per game value. That is very concerning. And he was not hurt during that stretch. Like again, that's per game value. Like that he was, you know, arguably a, a guy that you'd even want on your roster for a long stretch of games. And he didn't look like that player uh, for the final week or two of the regular season. Didn't look like that player in the playoffs, but that's, that's a pretty large sample that you have to weigh. So I, I feel like we were being maybe a little conservative placing him at 49, but when you play half the season as a, you know, non-rosterable player, like that's, that's something you have to take into consideration. Yeah. It's very bizarre. He kind of did the reverse, right? Where it's like teams were able to game plan for him during the regular season and then come playoff time, no one could stop him. Uh, very bizarre. Uh, but yeah, I mean, his, if you, if you just look at his stats from the final regular season game, the golden state game, uh, onward through the playoffs, he averaged 28, eight and five on, uh, 46, 35, 72 shooting. He's a guy too, where the free throws are concerning. He's not going to hit threes. He's not getting you steals. Um, his just his his stat profile does not really work for fantasy very well, even though he's a great player. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. There are some guys who are better fantasy players than they are real life players. He's definitely a more impactful real life player, excuse me, than he is fantasy player. For me, with with Durant, with Morant, it's it's about the free throws. You know, he was down to seventy two point eight percent. This past year, after being at 78 as a rookie, that's not that's not the area or the direction that you want to be going. Um, and then the three point shooting, which I mean, he had the final game against Utah in game five. He hits five threes. He had a five three pointer game against Gold State in the play in round where he was just completely unguardable in that game. 14 of 29 overall from the field for 35 points. Like I, I feel like he has the three point shot in his arsenal, but it just it comes and goes so much where you know, he had that five of 10 game and then game one against Utah, he goes all of one. So like, there has to be more consistency there. I think with him trusting that shot. His shot's kind of bizarre too, because it's almost like a set shot, even though yeah, he's one he, kinda, of the most he always explosive like hops at- into it. He hops into it, but he's one of the most explosive athletes we've ever seen. Yeah. Um. So it's, I, I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah. It's almost like he needs to come to a jump stop and then shoot it. But he, he did average over seven, three point attempts over the final four games against Utah. It was seven, 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 and then nine in that game five. So, I mean, hopefully that's an indication of things to come, but I, I do feel like he played so well at the end of the year that all the hype that we saw with him going into last season is going to be back and people are probably going to overdraft him a little bit. I I agree with you. I think he, he probably will be overdrafted, but um, he's also just a super cool player who you want on your team. Like that, you, that, that factor cannot be underrated. A hundred percent. Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, I was listening to the old man in the three pod with JJ Reddick this morning. Uh, he was on there. Ridiculously good interview for his age, by the way. I, I'm i always blown away whenever I, I listen to him talk. But he, he did say on there he's 100%. Uh, basically, the knee injury that we didn't really get a lot of info about because, one, Sacramento has, like, no media. And, two, it was at the end of the year and, and people were focused on other things. But he, he characterized it as a scare, you know, no real damage. So that's that's really good news because that looked like it might have been a torn ACL, you know, watching it live. But, you know, he's a guy that I, I think was kind of topped out as far as what he could do as a rookie. Like his rookie year went about as well as it possibly could have. And it, when you look at a guy that, you know, comes in as a as a 20 year old and has a 47 to 41, 86 shooting line, you know, the volume can certainly increase. He's at 30. He was at 13 points a game last year. 5.3 assists, 2.13s, 1.3 steals. You know, he, he could he'll continue to push that that scoring number closer to 20, I would think over the next year or two, but I can, can he really shoot the ball any more efficiently than that? Uh, on higher volume, probably not. Right. I think, and getting higher volume and getting more usage is going to be a problem on the Kings anyway, because of De'Aaron Fox being there. Um, and obviously like the franchise is really committed to him. Buddy Heel takes a lot of shots. Harrison Barnes became like a high usage guy. Uh, they have Marvin Bagley there. Who's trying to carve out his own, um, you know, his own thing. So I, like, I think he'll have, I mean, if you draft him, you know, he finished, uh, his, his rank was 69th per game this season, which is like incredible. Like when you, when you look at his stats, 13, five and three, essentially, you do not assume that translates to a 69th ranked player. Like he's kind of the opposite of John Morant, right. Where it's like somehow these stats like end up being incredible for fantasy. Um, but so I think, you know, if he if he bumps things up and he's at like 16, you know, 16 and six stays efficient, 
I think that will be a win ultimately because I think it will be hard for him to like just become a really high usage guy in their offense. All right, so you added a few guys to the list after Halliburton. I'll, I'll let you uh, lead us off talking about Kelly Olynyk. Incredible uh, showing at the end of the season. Like that's what the end of the NBA season can be terrible, but when you get to see Kelly Olynyk be a top twenty-five player after the All Star break, um, it's just something, <laughs> just something special about it. He averaged, I mean, he averaged nineteen eight and four for the Rockets and shot. Like 54, 39, 84. Just incredible. But he's a free agent. So I'm like just morbidly curious about what's like, where is he going to end up? Um, like, is there a team out there that's like, you know what? Maybe let's just play Kelly Olenek at center. We want to run five out. Um, I'm just fascinated by it. I think there absolutely is going to be a team like that who saw how well he played. And and part of it was being on a Rockets team that you know Christian Wood was hurt. Uh, virtually the entire roster was hurt towards the end of the year. So he was yeah. getting more reps than certainly he was going to get in Miami. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's not like this came completely out of nowhere. Like, obviously, he's never played that well. But he's always been a pretty good per-minute guy. Um, just that it's not quite good enough to ever be entrusted with, like, 35 minutes a night unless you're on a team like the Rockets who is just trying to lose games. But I feel like he showed enough that he's probably going to get overpaid by somebody. We have him at 92 in our rankings. And based on how he finished the year, that's very conservative. But but you know, as you kind of alluded to, there's almost no chance that he's going to end up in a situation where he's like the number one or number two option over 82 games. Yeah, mostly because he's old, right? Like he's 30. Like if Kelly Olenek was 24, I'm sure he would sign with the Pistons and play like 35 minutes a game. Um, and be there, you know, be there, Mason, Mason Plumley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like they already did that, actually. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen with him, but um, he's a guy who will move a ton based on where he lands, uh, which is also the case for someone like Andre Drummond. Um, yeah. There's plenty of guys who are free agents that it's like we have no idea. Dennis Schroeder. It's like yep. there's there's no way to effectively rank these guys at this point. Right. And, uh, and we should know we'll, we'll continue to update this list, you know, after the draft and after free agency to account for things like that. Right. And the last uh, the last guys I wanted to highlight, you know, over the past couple of seasons, we've had the Mitchell Robinson craze where everyone's like, just give this guy 30 minutes like he's ready. Uh, he's, you know, we have to draft him third round. Robert Williams and Chris Boucher are now the new Mitchell Robinson because Mitchell Robinson got, you know, his he, he regressed as a player. <laughs> like It's done. Um, I just like Robert Williams was incredible this season for the, uh, the Celtics, obviously like he got hurt late and that kind of, uh, ended his season, but he was, he only played 19 minutes a game this year and was 90th ranked, um, in fantasy. He's the, he was the seventh best player in the NBA in fantasy per 36. Um, and it's the same kind of thing for Chris Boucher, who obviously like early on, like really early on in the season was in the run for most improved was also in the run for six man of the year, but also someone he ranked 68th and 24 minutes a game. Um, I guess per 36 numbers are great too. Which of those guys do you prefer if you're drafting, you know, mid to late round? Um, I think, well, it's tough. I, I think if the Raptors go into a full rebuild, you have to love Boucher more. Um, just because, like, if he can actually play 32 minutes a game and, like, get more shots and kind of be a part of the offense and maybe they let him pass a little bit, that would be yeah. incredible. Um, it sh- I think I think in theory it should be Robert Williams because Tristan Thompson, like, I don't, like, there's no, you don't want him playing that much, I don't think. Um, but he has foul issues, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know right now. It kind of depends on how their, their respective offseasons go. I think you're right that Boucher has a little more upside. I mean, he also offers like high volume three point shooting, whereas Williams is pretty much five feet and in, and that results in a super high free throw or field goal percentage. So, you know, if if the volume is up, theoretically, you know, he's kind of in that like Zion, Capella, Gobert territory where you could pencil him in for like 60 to 70 percent shooting, which is huge. But, you know, he's he's not going to stretch the floor. Um, the, the thing with Williams, though, is he's he's also like a super underrated passer, which for most guys who are these like shot blocking, bouncy, you know, usually they're bad free throw shooters. They, they hand out like 0.1 assists per game. You know, I'm thinking like Hassan Whiteside types. Like there aren't many guys who have who could like arguably be the best shot blocker in the league and then also hand out a few assists. 
That's true. Yeah, I think um, some of that is going to depend on, like, if they get a more traditional point guard, he maybe has to do that less. If the Celtics end up kind of in the same issue, like if they get rid of Kemba Walker and they don't end up with a real point guard, I don't know what's going to happen there, but um, then his assist could go up. I think it, again, kind of depends on their offseason. So a guy we have at 77th overall, how do you feel about Kevin Porter? I'm skeptical. I am skeptical, but optimistic because I think they clearly want him and Christian Wood to be like the guys. I, I think that's true. I, I just don't like, I, I guess I don't like trust him, the person. And, you know, you don't, I don't want to hammer a guy who obviously has some serious off court issues, but like he was not around for the Cavs for the first couple of weeks of the season. And we're still not really a hundred percent sure what was going on there. Um, I just, I, I don't, I don't know that he's like a long-term option. You know, if, if, if next year's a rebuilding year again for the Rockets and he can just be the guy alongside Wood, that's all well and good. But I, I'm just hesitant to trust that he will be available for more than, you know, 70 to 80% of the season. Yeah, that's tough. It is, it is a little risky. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard when there's kind of off the court stuff, potentially. Um, maybe another guy who's like better suited for you know, being drafted in a best ball league. Absolutely. I mean, there's a point at which I would happily take him, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reach for Kevin Porter in like the fifth round. You know, I, I think for me, I'm waiting probably, you know, if he, if he's there in the, the late seventies in the eighties, then, you know, if you're deciding between Kevin Porter and D'Angelo Russell or Kyle Anderson or Larry Nance, you know, then, then to me it's worth it. But I, I would, I would rather take more of a sure thing over a guy who undoubtedly has upside, but also has pretty much as much downside as, as anybody that we're talking about in this range. Um, I want to hit on a couple more guys real quickly. Uh, Anthony Edwards at 84, R.J. Barrett at 88. Do you have a preference between these two? Um, <laughs> that's tough. Um, man. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I feel like I need to, I need to hear your argument first. I, I think I like Edwards just because the counting stats were that good as a rookie and, you know, the efficiency wasn't ideal, but 23 points, five and a half rebounds, three and a half assists, one and a half steals over his final 32 games. Like he got better and better and better as the year went on, which is really encouraging. Like I, I, I and a lot of people were ready to write him off like 10 games into the year when Lamella Ball is really taking off, Halliburton's taking off. Uh, at that point, people were still relatively high on Wiseman and, and Edwards was the one who was struggling. And I mean, by the end of the year, he made a very legitimate rookie of the year case. And I, I, I don't know that he has the tools to ever be like a, a second round fantasy guy who is just super well-rounded. But I, I think he looked a lot better as a rookie than I thought he would. I agree. Yeah, his his end of the season was great. Um, I think. Well, I think I think the the Wolves are more desperate for Anthony Edwards to be good than the Knicks are more desperate for RJ Barrett to be good kind of with the states of their franchise. Um, sure. And yeah, I mean, RJ Barrett was bad in the playoffs, got exposed essentially, um, has not proven to be like an effective passer. Um, and I mean, Anthony Edwards wasn't like an amazing passer by any stretch, but he had, I think Anthony Edwards, I mean, again, strong end of the season, made some insane, and probably the dunk of the year, right? And continue to make some insane, like, high level like wow this could be an nba superstar type plays how many of those has rj barrett had <laughs> you know yeah not a, not a ton not a ton no. and i'm still i'm still on rj barrett especially because the three-point shooting took a huge step forward oh yeah that's huge um, that yeah that, that i did not see coming whatsoever I would still just like to see him play a little more confidently and a little more aggressively like i i really thought he would be somebody who would just even even if it meant he was super inefficient, like I thought he would be 20 shots a game every single night, you know, because he is somebody that was raised like being the man at every single level. And that's kind of what we saw at Duke. And it, it just felt like he was a little more timid, especially at times this past year than I ever thought he would be. And I, I do still I'm, I'm very high on him long term, but I, I thought it would click for Barrett a little bit faster. Yeah, he still makes good plays, right? Like he's great at taking contact, getting to the rim, um, stuff like that. Like he. um 
a little concerning that his free throw attempts went down, but mm-hmm. he's he's shown more for me this year. I, I think I'm more encouraged than I was after his rookie year, which was good. Okay, we'll end on James Wiseman, who I, I snuck it in there at 140. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't even think like when you look through the the rankings, like I don't even think he showed up on the list. He was so far down. Um, obviously, missed games were a, a factor in that, but I, I I wouldn't say that I'm high on James Wiseman, but I, I feel like we in general the public has now become too low on Wiseman, and like I I would I think he's worth a stab with your final pick, like just the upside, you know, the physical gifts that he has. The fact that he didn't even play basketball for the year before getting drafted and then coming in with the pandemic, like I think a lot of things were working against him last year. And granted, he did hit rock bottom midseason, but I, I think he has nowhere to go but up. And I mean, the Warriors are very much invested in him being a very good player. Like they're they're not just going to, you know, cast him aside and oh that was a bad pick. Sorry, we'll we'll move on. Like I mean, they they have every reason to make James Wiseman a productive player next year. I'm with you. I think I, I would actually be surprised if he is still available where we have him ranked. I think that a lot of people will be probably in the camp that you and I are in where he was kind of, I want to say set up for failure this year. That's, that's probably too harsh, but I, I think, I think he'll, I think this off season will be huge for him. Um, and he's, he's definitely worth taking a risk on because his, I mean, his athleticism is insane. Um, if he can, if he can get used to the warrior system and I don't know, maybe having Clay Thompson back will help to some extent. Um, if he can get used to that system, I mean, he should be like an automatic, you know, 15 and 10, uh, if he can kind of just, uh, you know, find his way and get comfortable. Right. I, I think for guys who you might be able to get with your last pick, like you're not, you're not going to find a ton of players who have that kind of upside. And obviously there's plenty of downside, but you're, if you're taking them in round 10 or round 12, you're okay with, you know, basically like, you're not going to get anybody who you're like, wow, I'm so glad I got that guy at 140. Um, you know, you're, you're willing to live with maybe having to cut him two weeks into the year, but I just don't think most players in that range are, are the type who you could feel like you kind of hit a jackpot on. Right. I think there'll be some people who are really aggressive and will take Wiseman over like Kevin Love come draft oh, day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but We'll see. I mean, we have him ranked ahead of Love for a reason. I'm, I'm just, I'm done with Kevin Love. If we, I, I don't even remember putting him in the top 150. I, I don't know if that was my doing. Um, all right, man. So you're gonna be off to Milwaukee within the next hour or so here. Um, very much looking forward to your full report from Game Three. Uh, are, you. are you feeling any different about it now than you did two days ago? Um, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly really happy to be going. I think this is a series that I would. Uh, even if it ends up being a bad game three, even if the series goes terribly, I feel like I would almost kick myself for not going to a game during the series. Um, just kind of for the, like, you know, how many, how many times are you going to get to see these uh, great of teams play in person in your lifetime? Right. right. Um, with your hometown team and everything like that. So no, I'm, I'm really happy to be going. You were a big Blake guy growing up too, right? Oh, I, I dude, I, yeah. Blake was like one of my favorite Blake and Tarek Rose. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, we're two of like my favorite players growing up, like in high school. Um, so like, it's, it's great to see him succeed again and kind of be in this role. Um, like his, his career arc is kind of like one of the most unique we've ever seen. So I'll, I'll be happy to see him in person. I've only seen him in person one other time, uh, when he was on the Clippers and I think Chris Paul threw him a, like a half court alley-oop, which was, which was incredible to see at the time. All right, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it vicariously through you. I have a I have a beach volleyball game during the first half of the Bucks game, so we, we've okay. already I've already been in discussions with the team. Uh, there's been talks of setting up setting up an iPad next to the court uh, with a stream, right. or, at, or at least like blasting Ted Davis on the Bucks radio network. Uh, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be playing with with some nervous energy on the sand tonight, but uh, very much looking forward to to seeing what happens. As always, we're presented by WinBet. Check out winbet.com, especially if you're in a state that allows you to bet on WinBet. Uh, we appreciate their sponsorship. Alex, enjoy the game tonight, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.